Greetings from Las Vegas for Care Talk's third annual HLTH conference interview series. Returning guest, Dr. Sachin Jain, is president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. He's way ahead of the game by already publishing his predictions for 2023. And unlike John and me, he has not one, but two HBSs on his resume. <laughs> Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Sachin, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here with you both. Now, Sachin, you just published an essay. Can you at least get it the pronunciation of his name right? It's his second round. What do you want? Sachin. Sachin. Such an amazing guy. Can we, can we move to the question part of the podcast? Yeah. So you just, you just published an essay about being caught between two worlds. What are you talking about? Well, uh, when I was growing up, I wasn't sure uh, how and where I wanted to make my best impact. I think as the child of immigrants from India, I think there was always a tie back to trying to do more for people in India. And uh, when I was younger, I thought I might move back to India and do healthcare work in India. And then I spent a summer in rural Rajasthan, which is where my family is originally from two generations ago, and realized I have absolutely no place living in rural Rajasthan. But I, um, you know, have been thinking about over the last 20 years how I could make my best impact on the communities from which my family hailed and have partnered with groups like DaVita and Medical Missions for Children to bring new capabilities to the geography and found new ways of giving back, uh, you know, beyond just kind of being there in person. I think it's something that a lot of immigrants to the United States struggle with, um, which is, you know, how do you both be philanthropic and community oriented in the place where you live, as well as the place that you're from. I think as well, Sachin, as you know, my grandparents are Irish immigrants. I think there's also this, this question of identity and, and sort of ha having two identities, if you will, if you've got relatives who speak with an accent that's demonstrable or look a little different, is I do think it makes you a little bit more sensitive to those who are outsiders. I think feel, I feel like that in, in healthcare, where so much of the things that go wrong are things that don't fit in or, or aren't, aren't normal. And I think that there's a, there's a, there, you, you kind of own that need to connect back into the system because you never lose that sense, or at least certainly in my relatives, that they do have kind of, they're, they're loyal Americans, but they definitely have two different identities. Well, I think, you know, your notion of two different identities as being a lens through which to look at the healthcare system is one that I've thought a lot about. And um, there's actually a, a literature in the political science about concept called embedded critics. These are people who've kind of grown up in something, but then are able to step away from it and actually see it through a different lens. This is something that uh, Michael Walzer from Princeton popularized in the literature 30, 40 years ago. Michael Walzer started at Harvard. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. I didn't know that part of his intellectual history, um, Harvard guy. Uh, so, um, but you know, the reality is, is that David, you eventually got to Harvard as well. I think, I don't know, you're not one to talk, you know, there's the, we've already discussed the preparation H and I, I didn't want to say that to our guests as well, but that is the double, uh, the double Harvard. <laughs> but I did say about, you had two HBSs and I was of course re referring to Harvard business school. Did I pronounce that right, John? But there's also health benefit services. And I think that one of the things you've done in addition to bringing, uh, DeVita and philanthropic groups from Boston uh, is actually having some of your Harvard Business School classmates involved uh, in your hometown as well. Is that right? That's right. Human Human Benefit Services and the website's ihbstrust.org if you want to learn more about it. Um, but yes, those are the two HBSs in my life. Yeah. 
So, Sachin, talk a, maybe talk a little bit about one of the unique things you've been able to do as a doc and as a healthcare reformer with a government background and now the CEO of a Health Plan is you've gone after and created really a market as well as an, a new clinical delivery program for for healthcare for the homeless, which is, you know, is a long-term interest of mine and has been historically a desert in terms of success, like people have tried and failed. What is it about your model that works and how do you turn it into something that's replicable and scalable? So we're trying to take the principles of managed care, which is to try to invest more in preventative outpatient services in lieu of expensive, non-value-added inpatient services and apply it to serving the homeless population. Um, And this is something that came to me through um, inspiration from both experiences when I was an undergraduate, when I volunteered at a homeless uh, shelter, and then subsequently when I was at Caremore, when you know our teams in in a couple of markets would say things like, "Well, we don't want homeless patients," and I said, "We exist to serve homeless patients," and I realized that you know we didn't necessarily resource our teams well to actually manage these populations. When I got to Scan, I said, "All right, here we have an opportunity to potentially build intensive primary care, intensive behavioral health." to keep people out of acute settings and potentially lower their total cost of care. And that's the big experiment we're running. And we're we're almost at about a thousand lives that we're actually taking care of, which is a big chunk of people. I mean, there's 60,000 people experiencing homelessness in Southern California um, you know, every, on, on, on any given day and, and growing every day. And so there's, I think we have an opportunity to be part of the solution to this issue because I think we've miscast it as a society. I think we've primarily seen homelessness as a housing supply issue when in fact, those of us who've been close to this population recognize that there is a healthcare component to it. People either end up homeless because of uh, their homelessness or their homelessness is exacerbated by healthcare issues. And so I think there's an opportunity to build a healthcare first model. That's, lots of people talk about housing first models. I think there's an opportunity to build a healthcare first model um, with a single quality metric attached to it. That's that's a big differentiator for us. Our single quality metric is, was is the person housed after an episode of care and service from us? Um, and that's co- you know what we're aiming to do is to try to use healthcare as the front door to housing. Um, but you n- ultimately need to stabilize people's care, keep them out of the hospital. And instead of paying for that $300,000 ICU stay, pay for the intensive behavioral health and primary care that they really need to stay out of the hospital in the first place. Well, as, as you know, I, I started my career developing housing programs for homeless, mentally ill and, and families. And I do think that it's, I'd almost sort of characterize it slightly differently. And I know you bring this approach to it, which is you need to care first. It's care and connection first. And healthcare is actually a path to that. Feeding folks who are hungry is a path to that. And sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. Walgreens, we're, this week we're actually spending, we're going to home, local homeless shelters in, in Las Vegas and doing, you know, flu shots and COVID shots. Like it, it, the, it, there actually is no better vaccine clinic than a homeless shelter where folks are willing to actually get care. And the, and the fact that that is an innovation, I think, is sort of a, a, a real problem for a system that was willing to pay for an ER visit and and, and someone who's, who's having a, a, a desperate moment, but doesn't fund basic access to care for folks who actually you can find in the shelter. Well, I'm so glad to hear you're doing that. And, um, you know, congratulations to you, John, and your new role at, at Walgreens. I think, you know, what you're doing is so much of what's actually missing in our industry. Um, I'm sitting right now in a podcast booth in a you know multi gazillion dollar expo hall here at HLTH at the Venetian, which is all well and good. 
But you do wonder how many of the folks in this room actually spend time with the people that they claim to want to actually serve. And that is one of the authenticity problems that we have in our industry. Everyone wants to build a high cost, high needs patient problem without actually knowing patient program, without actually knowing what those patients you know need. And so I think one thing I can say to every attendee at this conference is like at least spend a week a year, two weeks a year, three weeks a year on the front lines, really trying to understand like who it is that you're trying to serve. You'll build better solutions that way. Well, I, I, and I think, how do you think that informs your role at SCAN, the nonprofit health plan that is delegated a lot of the risk to the doctors? How does that inform what you want to bring to that health plan to, 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 to make it a model of what you'd like to see in healthcare, in managed care? Well, I think, you know, the way I, one of the ways I stay close to our members is I literally give every single one of my, my members my email address. And I say, if you're, if you can't get your problems solved through normal channels within our organization, I am here as a release valve. Um, that gives them that feeling of security and confidence that they can come to me with anything. And, and they do. Um, and in, in doing so, I get to understand very clearly what the defects are in our system. Every time a, our non-emergency medical transportation vendor fails to pick someone up after they've been sitting in the heat for six hours, every time that, you know, uh, you know, we've promised someone a, a rebate or a, a prior authorization that doesn't actually happen, I understand, you know, what the defects are in our system. And again, I think that's something that's missing in our industry is staying close enough to the patients to really understand whether things work. And I think we have something I've, you and I have talked about before, which is a high degree of toxic positivity. People just believe their own BS too much. And as a result, you know, you end up believing that you've actually solved problems that are still unsolved. And I think that's one of the real challenges we have in our industry. We're too quick to declare success and victory. Lots of our, you know, lots of our friends have been super successful building you know, lots of different something that's sold, some, not something that cured. Exactly, exactly. And I think we glorify to an unhealthy extent the exit instead of actually glorifying whether the problem actually got solved. So, David, I hope you're not doing that. I didn't sell anything, John. I'm a hold, buy and hold. <laughs> I, I can't discuss my Walgreens <laughs> trades though on the show. So, Sachin, I mentioned that you have been ahead of the game in terms of talking about 2023. Uh, one of the predictions you made is that Medicare Advantage will be under a microscope. And in, in fact, that's a lot nicer way of saying it than one of our recent guests, Congressman Ro Khanna, who said, Medicare Advantage should not be allowed to be, it should not be allowed to call itself Medicare. That's not Medicare. Yeah. Well, well, I have some words for Ro. You can bring us back for a, you know, kind of brown on brown, Indian on Indian, American uh, uh, kind of discussion about this, because I, I think it's one of those. We'll, we'll pose it more like Harvard versus Stanford, Doc Yale, versus Harvard, lawyer. You Chicago, he's you Chicago, Yale. Uh, so we, yeah, we'll we'll do something like that. But my, what I'm what I want to say about about that perspective is again, it, not, I'm not sure how many Medicare Advantage beneficiaries he actually knows. And so I would like to. Well, he's from Silicon Valley. They just move them out. They yes, move them to LA. Exactly. So I'm not sure he knows very much about the topic. What I'll say is the following: Every system has problems. Medicare fee for service. Guess what? has problems. Do you know that in Medicare fee-for-service, we don't have eyes or teeth? Uh, do you know that in Medicare fee-for-service- used, used to didn't need drugs. And as, as now the president of Walgreens Health, we think it's a really good thing that now we actually pay for stuff that people need. Yeah. And Medicare fee-for-service, until 2004, uh, you, didn't, you didn't need drugs. Um, in Medicare fee-for-service, you don't ever need a ride to a medical office visit. In Medicare fee-for-service, in Medicare fee-for-service, you always have a meal waiting for you after you've been in the hospital at home. So you know, I, I just think um, 
I'd love, I'd love, I would love for you to organize this debate with Rob. We'll do it. We'll do it. We, but we want to see the, you got to bring the fire. So, so what I'll say is the following every system's got problems and Medicare Advantage has problems. I, I'm working with my provider partners in Southern California and in other geographies to think about a list of Medicare Advantage never events. And what I mean by that is there are some really bad things that happen in Medicare Advantage. Sometimes we deny care that we shouldn't deny. Um, sometimes we introduce weights and delays. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, sometimes we have, provider access issues. Um, guess what? Those same provider access issues exist in Medicare fee-for-service. My point is, is that we should take, take a list of things that you know, need to happen and make sure that, and hold ourselves accountable to do it. And that- But, one, but you, just, you just hit on exactly the, the thing that I think that Roe misses as a, as a p- politics-oriented lawyer, which we got into after the podcast, which is there is no accountability in fee-for-service. There, it doesn't always work in managed care, but there's absolutely more accountability and more transparency to what's going on in, in, in Medicare Advantage with, its, with, with all of its genuine challenges and, and, and frankly, structural. it's structurally unfair in certain ways, but there is more accountability. And, and, and in general, one of the things that I think that comes out in your writing is you care about accountability. Like let, let's talk, let's talk results. Let's not do any magical thinking. Well, and, and one of the crazy things, so, you know, we're in the middle of AEP right now. Uh, annual, the annual enrollment period for med, for Medicare advantage folks who want to join folks like my 88 year old mom, October 15th through December 7th, every year is the selling season for Medicare advantage. And here's what I'll tell you. People are not paying enough attention to star ratings. Brokers don't pay enough attention to them. Members don't pay enough attention to them. They, you know, and I think we have to do more to make the star ratings visible and meaningful to older adults. How would you explain it to my 80-year-old mom? I mean, she's like, it's really complicated. There are these celebrities promoting certain things. Lionel Richie? Exactly. Or or Joe Namath. Lionel Richie was a good that was a that's your that's your that's your demographic. No, not really. Not not really. But let's let's but let's explain what stars no, but no, to, to, but to follow up on 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 Sessions point, not Rose. How do we act? Well, like, how would you describe what stars are and why they matter? They are a measure of patient experience and clinical quality. And um, the the system goes from one star to five stars. If you're four or above, you're pretty good. Um, if you're below four, you probably should enroll in that plan. And um, it, it, I think it's re- it's very difficult to watch seniors enrolling in plans in my market. Um, that are three stars. Uh, we've got two three-star plans in my market. We've got a few three-and-a-half-star plans. The, people shouldn't be enrolling in three-and-a-half and three-star plans. See, I, I, t- I try to break it down and even make it simpler. The, the stars measures are simply a measure of whether you're going to get healthier or whether you actually had a good experience with your doc in the system. I like your version. All right, John. Now, David, please, come on, jump in here. I'll be happy to do it, John. So there was another one, and I'm going to paraphrase the uh, the prediction, which was that basically was saying home based care is going to be revealed as overrated. Oh, here he can see he's neat. Such a needs to fight. He needs to go after everybody. He's always going after me. He, he may say that wasn't his prediction, but that's how I read it. That wasn't my prediction. My prediction is let's just let's just be a little bit more nuanced in our conversations about home based care. Home based care is a phenomenal solution for some conditions and some people some of the time. But I think what's happened is in our industry we've got. I'll use the phrase again, toxic positivity around certain themes. Value-based care is one of them. Um, Home-based care is is another one. And I say this as a guy who in the last two and a half years has either started or bought four home-based care companies. I sit on the board of two other companies that are trying to enable care in the home. You're on a lot of board. So the point I'm trying to make is I believe in home-based care 
for the right patients in the right circumstances. And I think I will tell you what opened my eyes about this is I have a father who started dialysis during the pandemic and I saw, and I was somebody who said, oh, more peritoneal dialysis at home, more dialysis at home. That's the way to do it. And I, then I saw how hard it is for a family, multi-generational family like ours, where I've got my parents living under the same roof as my brother and my sister-in-law and you know three able-bodied nephews and how difficult, physically difficult it was for them to lift the 15, 20 pound bags of urine that came out. Now imagine for a second that my parents were living by themselves. They couldn't do that at home by themselves. Well, we, but to be fair, the system for home-based dialysis is not set up to be successful at scale or often, honestly in a bunch of different instances. But the system, because the reimbursement is set up that way, you have three times the utilization of home-based dialysis in Europe. And I think it's the majority of dialysis actually in, in Australia. So we could set it up that way, but I don't sometimes think the structure of reimbursement and then then the models that people fall in love with. Because one of the things you're, you point out, I think, accurately is that just because it's a good model doesn't mean it works. Well, And here's what we do. There's a labor arbitrage. We take work that ordinarily was doing by paid staff in facilities, and then we push it onto unpaid staff and we ask the government to pay us the same amount. That's some version of what we're doing with the home-based care movement. No offense to anyone here or in the listening audience, but that, but that is that is that is part of what's going on. And what I would say is the home-based care crowd should put their money where their mouth is, and they should ask to be paid less for than than they would otherwise get paid for the same things in facilities. That's how we're going to get savings in the healthcare system. Yeah, I, I think I don't think I don't think we at Carecentrics or we at Walgreens Health would have any problem with that because because that's the right way to do it. But but one of the other things you've been cranky about is whether we're going to other, are we delegating too much of the work that should be a doctor's to folks who are not doctors. And I think that's a really interesting line you picked out because it's not clear to me that that's even done well in a hospital. We have a sorting problem. The we 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 have a lot of work that's getting pushed to the wrong types of people to do that work. And then we we're scratching our heads when the outcomes aren't good. And I, and I have now worked for multiple companies whose, whose primary model is shifting work to different kinds of people. Um, and what I would say is, is that or shifting work to other types of people and paying them not enough to actually get the job done that, or, or I would say that not training them well enough to actually do the job that we're asking them to do. There's so many high cost, high, high, high need, patient companies, many of them here, whose primary model is to take fresh graduates out of you know, nursing schools and take them and apply them to the sickest patients in the healthcare system and magically hope that things are going to get better. That is like, ju- it just doesn't even match kind of on the face of it logic. So they say, oh, there's this supervision layer. Well, I'll tell you about that supervision layer. It's, it's usually through some form of lazy chart audit where someone's reading the chart and they're like, oh, this sounds right. With no real check on whether the stuff that's in the chart is actually the stuff that ought to be in the chart. So you don't even know if you're reading an accurate telling of the patient because you're not actually going to see the patient yourself. You're just reading some two-dimensional version of them. Guys, we're messing up the healthcare system. We, you know, it was it was never a system in the first place, but you know, we're adding more entropy into the universe. And it's not, it's not going to be good for us. I have one last thing I want to say, because this guy's always beating me up for being a cynic. This is and this guy is John Driscoll. And I I read something beautiful recently, which is that, you know, cynics or idealists with in, in, like impossibly high standards. I actually think you are a cynic with possibly high standards, and I look forward to a healthcare system that aims at those same high standards. Thanks for joining us. So it it, it brings a, it just brings a tear to my eye. So before I choke up further, I'm just going to say we've been broadcasting here from Las Vegas at Care Talk's third annual 
HLTH conference interview series. Our guest is a returning guest here. He may be back again this time for a fight to the death challenge with another recent, a recent guest. And I guess it's been Dr. Sachin Jane, President and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. I'm David Williams, President of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, President of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service. Thank you for coming, Sachin. Thank you.